Okay, let's, uh, good morning, let's continue with the lectures. So now that I've been doing uh, the home exercises as well, uh, looking at these contingency tables. So, our task was to discover rules in the data, in the shopping basket data. Uh, the left hand side predicts the right hand side. And the support is in here, and then you can say how often when you have left hand side, when this is not present, so you have another number, and then you have a marginal count, the overall database size. I hope that you sort of, uh, when you look at the measures, that you sort of um, as I was sort of warning last time, it, it's uh, the four numbers that are in here. They are actually more complex than they look, uh, because you may want to have different uh, properties out of the out of the data. And the question of what is interesting uh, can actually vary. What are your assumptions? What what type of uh, rules you would like to uh, find? Or why, what kind of predictions we would like to, to be able to make. So, so we said that with these four numbers, uh, actually the others can be calculated, and then different uh, different measures uh, can be uh, can be uh, can be calculated based on which we can sort the rules. But some of the measures, like for example, confidence, could be something that we don't want all any high confidence rules because the confidence, for example, may be misleading in some cases uh, because actually the, this confidence is lower than what you would expect if people do not drink coffee. Okay, so so there were all these different uh, uh, measures. Uh, let me jump over this. Uh, uh, and, and then, yes, we, we looked, uh, I have this paradox in here that uh, we may make uh, wrong assumptions if we don't have enough background uh, data about uh, uh, this is administering drug uh, to different uh, uh, classes of people and counting how often they are recovered or not recovered. And the example was that although the numbers seem to be that the recovery rate is higher than uh, uh, giving the drug, the recovery rate may seem to be higher than without the drug, but if you look carefully in the data and observe that we have males and females that have these different uh, frequencies uh, in the data, so subset of those data, two different subsets, actually in both cases, the recovery rate would be lower with the drug than uh, so we may easily make wrong conclusions if we don't have enough uh, careful enough understanding of our data and what might be the other uh, factors affecting the data. If you think of the, if you think of the, I don't know, uh, 
even those traditional, actually this homework you may have, you have one very open-ended uh, question uh, to compare, to think how to use the association rules to look over time, compare different days, compare different shops, etc. So, so there may be well uh, situations that, that, of course, certain types of behaviors happen, but they are very specific to, to certain, uh, I don't know, probably uh, today and tomorrow people are buying a lot more eggs than usual. Right? You have already got your white eggs? Nobody. Um, for, the, for the Easter. So these, uh, these uh, uh, different, different uh, background information may be, uh, should be useful in the analysis. But it's, it's that hard to take them into account, probably. And, and think how to make the, the algorithm that is able to take all of this into account. Okay, so um, you did uh, uh, quite well in the, in the homeworks. You, you looked at some of these measures, I guess. I don't know actually what was the principle, how, how, you, uh, how you chose uh, just to look at uh, some formula that looks smaller than some other. <laughs> uh, did you try? Did you try to verbally understand what, what that formula tries to capture? No? You just wrote the code that executed something. So these were... Uh, okay, so, so symmetric... Uh, symmetric are the ones when x to y or y to x we could replace basically just swapping this and this value. Uh, so the symmetric ones, uh, asymmetric ones, uh, these are only for one directional rules. Um, well, this basically repeats the same, but just now expresses most of these as uh, expressed in the, uh, in the, in the form of uh, probabilities. So these are based on these uh, 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 frequency counts, but uh, these are more uh, uh, about the probabilities. So the same formula should be uh, should be expressing exactly the same uh, value. Although now it depends which one is more easy for you to read and understand and interpret, because you, you need to interpret uh, the measure. By telling, I want to capture certain types of uh, of association rules, and that's why it's very useful to play with this. I would like to get a very good score for this type of uh, value, and then make sure that you use the right uh, measure. So the Deskisha Piero was, uh, uh, they sort of said, what type of uh, what are the good characteristics of, uh, of these kinds of objective measures? First of all, measure should tell you that uh, the value is zero, or sort of like there is no information if the two variables A and B are statistically independent. If they are independent, the number of times you observe them together is what you would expect. Under independence, you take the probability and 
the other probability, multiply them together, and that's exactly the value that you observe. So if they are independent, uh, the measure should be a zero. Then if we don't uh, change the, the probabilities of A and B or the, these marginal probabilities, when we look at them together, when this count increases, right, we observe that uh, uh, this could be exactly what predicted, and then it uh, should be zero. But if we sub increase the joint occurrences when they occur together, we sub increase that, the measure should also be increasing. Yeah. So measure should go up when when uh, we see two things together more often, and vice versa. Uh, if we don't change this value, if this uh, is fixed, but when 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 these uh, marginal probabilities go down, and this is still uh, the same number, uh, then the measure should be monotonically decreasing. Right? So that's kind of reverse because we say that these two things fixed, this increases, or we keep this, uh, this probability is unchanged, but when we decrease one or the other, then the value should go down. So uh, you already did some comparisons. Uh, I experimented with one task. Um, um, I, I, I'm coming back to that. But in the literature, how uh, how some of these comparisons have been done uh, is in here. So this is just your randomly generated set of uh, contingency tables, ten such rows, and uh, now applying the different measure, this pi, alpha, kappa, Piatesky, uh, Shapiro, uh, whatever the measures were, you can rank the different rows. You have, we have 10 rules for which we, 10 different rules for which we have these uh, uh, frequencies counted, and then we can use any of these measures and sort. So by five, they are sorted one, two, three, four, five to ten. But alpha gives us different ordering. Three, one, two, ten, four, five. So four drops quite below, four drops quite below compared to uh, five me measuring here. And uh, the same thing with all the other. Even E10, even this E10 is ranked first under this measure, uh, whatever the I now was, some information uh, based measure. But most of the others keep it on the tenth place. So the, the I measure rates well when this uh, F10 is high. And F11, F01, low. When this is high, and this is high, this and this, these are high, then uh, 
then this uh, I measure ranks this the first. So in this way, you can sort of should be able to uh, uh, develop some sort of intuition what one or the other uh, method may give. So these are the symmetric ones. Under the asymmetric ones, none of the measured rates E10 as very high. If this is symmetric, then probably, probably swapping these two values should give exactly the same measuring value. And this is something, of course, that you can test your code. So uh, you, we can think: What are the? Uh, how do we change um, uh, the? What are the changes to the contingency tables? In here, it's just symmetry. P and S are exactly the same. R and Q are swapped, right? So what happens when we swap these two values? Does it stay equal? If it does, then it's symmetric, and these are the measures. If they change, then these are the asymmetric ones. So from A, not B, or not A, to B, uh, so these two values just swap. The number of times we observe B and A together, and the number of times we, when we don't uh, observe either one, uh, so these remain the same. Uh, so it's, uh, it's this thing. What happens when, okay, now the interesting questions will be, what happens if we start scaling? We have one small table, but let's multiply this. Uh, let's, what happens if we have twice more male customers, we just get twice uh, all these numbers. But for females, we increase by tenfold. 10 times more females, so now we have imbalance between males and females. 30-40 is the same as 3-4, and 4-2 is the same as 2-1 ratio, but we have uh, imbalance in the number of males females. Uh, so what happens uh, to the measures in this case? In your homework, uh, what you did was that took one of these values and just started changing one value at a time. Right? There was no uh, there was no flipping of the values, or what happens if you start doing these kinds of uh, multiplications, either uh, column-wise or row-wise. But these are all the things that you can you can test, right? So uh, these are the counts of the times when you observe uh, these. Uh, conditions, so variables A and B, you can say that transactions, actually in here, A and B never occur together, uh, but they are together zero, right? One, zero, zero, one, one, zero, all the rest is zero, zero. What will happen if we flip the bits of the columns? Now we have C, D occurring uh, Two variables occurring together three, four, five, six, seven times. Um, so now we get seven times from C to D, 
uh, once from C to not B, and twice from not C to B. So we, we get, just by flipping uh, bits, we get very different contingency tables. And we could think of uh, what happens if you don't split both bit vectors, but only one. So here only one of those was split, and the other was kept the same. Of course, the frequency of B is now very small, uh, so only once, so it, it, it does not mean that it's meaningful uh, for association rules, but the principle is that you can ask what happens if you just need uh, the opposite. Uh, sort of like, instead of asking who bought the milk, which is the most frequent product, you could say who avoided milk. Uh, phi coefficient is sort of like correlation between the variables to be observed x and y together or not together uh, in which frequency. So basically, as you can observe, 10, 10 is kept, but 60, 20 is swapped, 20, 60. 60, 20, 20, 60, and then you can uh, calculate the measure. This uh, kind of correlation coefficient is actually giving uh, the same uh, value. The formula looks scary. Uh, but once you have implemented it, you get uh, values calculated. Null addition is something that, uh, imagine, you have one shop, you have your data, and then you just uh, uh, add some, some other shop that uh, sells totally different products. So what happens in this case is A and B are not uh, sold, so just uh, the ones that do not have no A, no B, you just add uh, some K items in there, which sort of are totally irrelevant for the A and B, you just make the database larger. What happens to the measures? So some of the measures are invariant to this addition, Support, the, the support count uh, remains uh, intact, uh, goes into your card, but some are uh, actually changing. So the odds ratio was defined, I think, from the, what are the odds to observe B from the fifth database, entire database versus on this row. And then uh, these different measures, of course, have different ranges. They can be from minus one to plus one. Uh, they can uh, go from zero to one, which is uh, a random case to infinity. They can be from zero to one, from half to infinity, from minus 0 0.25 to plus 0 0.25. So they are the mathematical uh, ranges where the value could be. Um, and then for these different properties, one, two, three, uh, what were the old uh, properties? Oh, I don't remember at the moment. For the different properties, you can count whether they satisfy one, second, third property or not, and uh, try to uh, see which one, uh, which one uh, may, may fit your purpose. And then this is a, a card, this card here. 
Cutler that uh, he's working with Hopper. So I, I like the way how he. Uh, I had I had not done this kind of thing. So starting from this uh, matrix and just asking what happens if you start uh, changing varying one one value at the time from zero to one thousand, and then for different measures uh, you can observe uh, what are the behaviors uh, when you change. Uh, this is F10. If you increase this, then all the measures actually decrease. Yeah. And in here, increasing this, some measures decrease, some measures increase. Oh, sorry, F11 is, is this value. Uh, why, why some measure decreases at the moment? I am, uh, what was this? I don't. Gene index. Uh, Gene index. Uh, Gini index me measures how equal things are. Gini index you have heard in the in the context of economic analysis how, for example, how the wealth is distributed in the country, right? How, how many are super rich? How many are super poor? Or are they more uh, homogeneous uh, um, income levels? So basically, with the Gini index you can observe that whenever you change any of the values, you get away from the, uh, in a way, intuitively, you get away from the being equal, right? You start producing inequalities. Uh, this is uh, shown in here, Gini index. At 250, everything is, uh, the Gini index, uh, index is at zero, or the, the most balanced, but when you start increasing or decreasing one value, then you cause imbalance, uh, whichever way you go. And, uh, and this is now different uh, different measures and what happens to these four different values that you can change one by one, uh, not in four, uh, four ways how the measures uh, change. So um, I, I think in a way, uh, I did not I, I did not know up front uh, what it will look like, but it seems that uh, that this is a pretty nice way to try to characterize some of these uh, measures. Okay, so uh, starting from some intuitive, desirable uh, two by two matrix or contingency tables, accounting uh, for rule support. You can observe what changes are when you start changing values. If we think of the real case, frequent uh, items at mining, then the first limitation that you put on the frequency, frequent items at, is the frequency. You are not usually looking at item sets that have very small frequencies, right? There has to be relatively high support by definition because then you have less room. So you can ask the question what happens when we prune away all the low support uh, rules. So this, uh, these authors uh, generated 10,000 random contingency tables, computer supports and theorized correlations for every uh, table, for every measures actually, and then try to understand what effect had the support pruning 
on those correlations. So correlation coefficient uh, between the variables in the rules are normally distributed. So its correlation is zero for most of the random contingency tables. For some, it's highly positively correlated. For some, it's highly negatively correlated. Now, what happens when we kick in the requirement for, for high support? This happens. This is high support is at least one percent frequency. This eliminates most of the negative correlated. But it, it eliminates mostly these values that are negatively correlated. High correlated values uh, or tables it does not eliminate. Going from one percent to three percent to five percent, the the trend strengthens. So getting rid of most of the negatively correlated. Uh, tables and maintaining those which have high uh, positive correlation. So if your cor positive correlation is what you look for, then support pruning is actually quite okay because you may still find these high correlation rules in the data. And then you can, uh, you can of course uh, compare what happens with the pruning to any of the measures uh, again by randomly generating these contingency tables, uh, ranking them, how the, how the different uh, tables rank on that measure, and then you can compare these two rankings, right? The first to the seventh, second to the third, whatever. So this is uh, how many? About, about 15, I'm oh, sorry, about yeah, 20, 20 different measures compared to each other. So this uh, crossing in here is measuring, comparing correlation to the 18th measure, and 18th is, is it, uh, correlation to Jacquard. So this is uh, comparing uh, two measures in this cell and asking what is the correlation between correlation measure and Jacquard index uh, for the 10,000 contingency table. So this is the scatter plot of these, how the two measures, uh, correlation and Jacquard, uh, correlation zero, Jacquard could be very high. When correlation is very high, Jacquard is also very high. But the red area is the one where the, cor well, the, the correlation between the two measures is less than uh, 0.85. So they are not so high, uh, well correlated in here. So on the red, these are more correlated measures. Uh, correlation about 0.85 for any pair that is in these cell red cells. So this is uh, all pairs without any pruning basic support. But if you if we prune the rules in the way that we keep only the ones that have at least five uh, zero point five percent and below fifty percent, then the correlation between the measures increases. So increasing the support minimum support from uh, uh, to above zero point five percent already uh, makes the table more red or more pairs of correlation uh, more pairs of these. Uh, uh, measures have high correlation. And now the same 
correlation and Jacquard index looks uh, slightly different. So in here, this is an all possible contingency tables, and this is only the higher support ones. So the correlation has increased between the two measures. Uh, so this was from 0.5% to 50%, and this is uh, bounding from above at the 30%, so not to the very high frequency ones, and then in a way, pairwise correlations are getting even stronger, so the different measures sort of print out the similar uh, values uh, more often, and this uh, measuring here, this scatter plot shows what happens to the two uh, measures, correlation and the card. Uh, across a broad range of different contingency tables. So in your homework, you fixed one contingency table and then varied one variable, what happens. But this is across the broad range of different contingency tables and what are the, how the measures uh, relate to each other. One is low, the other is low. One is high, the other is high. We need to have some uh, measure that we can calculate. And these we call objective measures because uh, you can calculate these in the program and you can sort based on these, uh, for example, these 21 measures of association. Um, you can say that I found the best rules according to those uh, rules. But this objective or calculated measure does not necessarily uh, follow the intuition of the user, right? Subjectively, somebody may say that I want certain types of rules, I prefer certain types of rules over the others, and not necessarily even being able to formalize that in the formula. So here we can have very precise, precisely formulated formula, uh, calculating these measures, but subjectively, it could be still that somebody start saying that, oh, I would like to have these kinds of features. And then uh, domain knowledge and real evidence, you can start comparing. You can interview some experts. So what is your domain expertise? How would you uh, believe how the things are? Uh, so the expert would say that all these pluses, would, he, he expects to be frequent, and the minuses expects not to be frequent. But then you make your code and calculate actual evidence, and then you have the boxes for frequent patterns and circles for not frequent ones. So if a box has a plus, that was what domain expert expected to be frequent. This was expected to be frequent, but expert did not believe that in advance. Maybe he now has a different book. So you can sort of like uh, try to where the mismatch between the expertise and evidence is, so that you present more the ones that are counterintuitive to the expert. Okay, so uh, this is a kind of a gentle introduction to the very basics of association rules. Um, now you have a you have applied them to some extent. You looked at the, you looked at the um, 
Titanic data, right? So how easy was it to work with the, uh, these rules? Easy? No. Why not? What are the problems? You have to compare a lot of rules and There can be a lot of rules that talk almost about the same things, but it's very hard to compare which one you look at, right? Because out of the database, you can uh, you can generate this. Uh, this illustrates how many, depending on the minimum support. Uh, this is. Uh, um, I did not make the slide Marcus did, but somehow the scale does not look right in here. So the problem is that when you lower the threshold for the support, your number of rules explodes. You start having many, many, many different rules. And many of them are, uh, I don't know, could be very similar. A, B, C predicts D. A, C predicts D. A, and uh, D predicts D. A lot of that, right? And even if you apply some uh, uh, quality scoring here, uh, you may be uh, in trouble whether you whether you capture everything that is relevant in the data. And underline if you if you think of the first set, the first step uh, that you produce all these frequent item sets, then you have of course. Uh, um, Three uh, item sets A, B, C, D, A, C, D, A, D, B. Many different item sets that have different frequencies. You have large database, of course, each one will have slightly different uh, frequency. Uh, there was one person who missed one product. I had my shopping list in there, but I missed one of those. Right? I was supposed to buy something, but it wasn't in the shop or. or slightly different uh, frequencies already. So uh, some authors have started to challenge the entire uh, uh, field of these frequency item set mining that it's not, it's not clear that uh, that this, uh, everything that we told about the frequency item sets in the shopping market baskets, that these shopping baskets should be analyzed exactly this way. Having the tool does not mean that uh, uh, that solves your big problem. This is just one one take on that uh, kind of data. And uh, in 1990s, when this was proposed, it was like, oh, let's enumerate everything, and then you focus on trying to enumerate everything, uh, trying to produce all the rules. And the, of course, the problem is that there are going to be many, many, many. And this is very hard to convey to people. So you could you could think of that um, uh, somehow differently that we have this huge massive database of transactions. How do how do we represent that uh, knowledge or the, uh, that data how do we get knowledge about this database somehow 
uh, intelligence. What is the knowledge about the data? The data mining, the goal is to tell something about the data to the end user, so to the machine that is good to use that knowledge, right? What is that knowledge that you want to know about database of, huge database of transactions? Yeah, we have calculated all kinds of statistics already. Um, some sort of high-level understanding of statistics, right? Some relevant statistics. But what is relevant? What is the description of all the data? Some rules. Oh, okay. Um, maybe maybe your rule is something that applies for this subset. You have a rule, you're satisfied, you can you can satisfy these customers, you can work with those customers. But this is not about all the data. This is about one subset. And then you keep doing this. Maybe maybe you want to eliminate those and keep doing and looking for this next rule, etc. We will need to know what state I call about. Yes, the background knowledge, the domain knowledge is extremely useful to, to try to understand the data. Um, the, the very uh, sort of uh, I'll put it Intuitively, what you would like to have about the data is that uh, you know everything about the data already, and we don't need to tell that twice or three times. We don't need to repeat information. So intuitively, the, what we want to have is something that is, let's take our rule, right? So we, in a way, what we try to do now, uh, now is based on the data, we want to have the database or set of rules that describes the data. We extract rules from this database, right? This is what we are after at the moment. But somehow we would like to have the rules that are able to explain all the database as well as possible. So that these rules, these rules come our, become our representation of the data. Again, you don't want to have so huge databases, just data in there. You want to have high level of knowledge, rules, uh, some model of the world that uh, instead of learning out all the rules of Go, you have, want to have the model of the Go pro playing program 
that uh, can calculate everything. Or instead of instead of uh, instead of uh, memorizing the database for every single customer, maybe we want to have the, the typical customers would uh, work like this or this or this. So intuitively, what we would like to have is uh, uh, the rules. We can say that the rules are sort of like this is our model of the of the data. We want to model the database, uh, in this case using the rules, right? We want to have some sort of model of the database uh, that is uh, that is short. And we want to have a model that is as the length of the model description is as short as possible. I don't have uh, 50 lectures to tell you about every case in the in the in the database, right? I have only chance to talk to you three minutes about this. So can we represent in three minutes everything that is in the in the database? The description of the database in as short uh, number of bits as possible. If we can model uh, the rules behind the data, yes, you, Forget about the shopping. We, 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 uh, or yeah, we want to. In this case, we think all the time that this is the shopping basket. But this could be some other data, yeah, which really follow the physical world properties and rules. So if you understand the rules, then we can generate this data always from these rules from the model. Now in the in the real world. The model could be, the most accurate model would be the database itself. And then we have no compression achieved. In a way, what I'm saying is we want to have some compressed view of the data, the shortest possible model that explains the data exactly. And in order to have it exactly, we know upfront that there are going to be errors or cases that need to have the special attention. Uh, that are sort of uh, exceptions. So what we want to have is that we can't just demand that make, make me the smallest set of rules that explains everything. But we, what we could do is give me the model of the world that is short, and we accept that there will be some exceptions. We can handle the exceptions with a separate list of exceptions. But what we care is that we don't spend too much length in measuring the number of bits to express these exceptions. So, in a way, we want to have, from above this data, we want to have a set of rules or, or some sort of model that can really describe the data with a model and the needed expressions and in the shortest possible manner. Shortest possible uh, description that captures the model or rules and uh, all the exceptions. Then we can sort of like say, okay, if, if we can have a very good, if we can find very good rules, this explains majority of the data, and uh, we can leave it this that there are occasional exceptions. 
We can make the model more complex. We, we can have more rules in this model side. We can have less exceptions, right? But the question is about the balance. Uh, increasing the model description length will decrease this. Uh, but then maybe ultimately we just put all the data into the model and there is zero exception. Right? Or we make it as small as possible. Uh, model model is we don't know anything, just list everything as exceptions. So everything has rules, or everything has as, as exceptions. Everything is uh, all the bits, all the length is on the rules, all the length is on the on the on the exceptions. What we would like to have is some sort of like minimum that is relatively small rule, relatively small number of exceptions. So instead of listing everything possible, you could ask, give me the set of, uh, give me such set of uh, uh, item sets that allow us, uh, allow me to describe this data. If indeed tear diapers, sausage, uh, sausage mustard are being bought together, so we just say that rule 75 applies for this individual. And this and this and this. And rule 75 should be shortened to say that uh, diapers, uh, beer, sausage, mustard. Uh, so the key idea is somehow that, in a way, we, we say that we understand the data and we can compress it efficiently. Because if we can compress the data efficiently, that means we can capture a lot of regularity in the data and then deal with the noise. So the idea is that uh, in here, instead of rules or model, this is the hypothesis or H. Uh, length of H is uh, the length of the model, and length of uh, data uh, using the model. How, how much do you spend, given the model, how much bits do you need to use to, to describe the data? And this part, okay, it's slightly different notation, uh, it's not only exceptions, uh, model, uh, oops, yeah, I would say the model plus exceptions, that, but in here it's actually the length of the model plus how long is the encoding if we, once we have that model? Even this model, how do we describe the data? Because knowing the different rules, we can just point that, oh, instead of replicating everything in this rule, we can just say that rules are defined. Joke 32 is enough for you to start laughing. You have a database of jokes. And then uh, somebody says, oh, don't, don't be so rude, we have women in here. Don't tell the joke 32 because we have women in here. So, uh, um, uh, freaking uh, uh, started to apply this minimum description length principle on the item set mining. And then uh, the goal is just to have, to find item sets, a data, to make a small database of item sets, so describe the, the rules model in a, uh, finding such item sets uh, that can be used to describe data. 
And of course, the, the item sets that are very frequent, if you have one rule that covers, I don't know, uh, uh, milk and uh, I don't even know what goes well with milk, maybe sour cream, or milk and butter for some people, or milk and bread for some. If there are millions of individuals who have that rule, uh, that means that you want to describe these millions of people. For that rule, you want to have very short code word. The more frequent is the word, the shorter the code word. So you could get to the coding theorem. Uh, you have uh, you have heard about these uh, uh, text encoding and, and coding, information encoding that uh, uh, representing data using these Huffman codes. Have you heard about Huffman codes and stuff like that? So the coding the message, coding the text, you have the frequencies of letters, right? The most frequent letter should have the shortest bit number of bits to encode that. And then you can build the codes that for most frequent uh, things have short code words, and then for less frequent one, the one that you observe only once in, in 500,000 cases, you can waste more bits. So million times you use just three bits, and once you use 75 bits. But overall, the length will be shorter. So basically, uh, you can you can uh, stream to find the item sets uh, that are frequently used, and the most frequent uh, the most frequently used item sets get the shortest code word. And then you can take the, this ABC that the, the data sets A has this white code word, the number of bits, whatever the number of bits there is. So the white code word, the gray, the, the C is the least frequent. So, but luckily we don't use it so frequently. So basically, with this code word, we use that many bits to encode the data. Very high level. With a, with a database of rules, we can encode the data uh, referring to those rules and trying to cover all the, all the cases in the database. So now that uh, this is the, uh, this was the clip tool uh, that he made. So basically the Problem is that the number of item sets is huge, it's growing exponentially, and trying to find a small combination out of those that allows you to include data efficiently, uh, this becomes a hard optimization problem. But you try to get from the database, you try to make uh, lots of patterns or, or different uh, uh, patterns, then you start with the empty code table, and then you try to figure out which patterns allow you to encode the part of the data efficiently um, so that you use, you start building the code table uh, from these many different patterns and you enter the, uh, these patterns into the code table that allow you to encode database with that rule efficiently, right? So you try to optimize for small set of codes in the code table as the set of rules, and then uh, make sure that you are able to encode the database in a, in a short, compact manner. 
you know that uh, uh, being being greedy uh, does not pay always, right? Uh, sometimes it pays. So sometimes you can just take one of these rules that is giving you immediately the biggest save in the compression, and you can apply that rule, right? And then you can do greedily the next one. Try to encode whatever is uh, left in the database, and take the next one. So you can make a greedy algorithm that is relatively uh, quick, but that does not mean that this, uh, this is ultimately the optimal one. The problem is that with selecting one, you are sort of like moving in one direction rather than you should have done this and this and this and then do slightly different things. Um, but in the, in the crit, because this is uh, a hard optimization problem, I think this was done exactly sort of like in the greedy process, uh, enlisting uh, many different patterns and greedily selecting ones that are allowing you to, to compress data. So instead of uh, theoretically making the smallest description, we try to get the smallest by being greedy. Optimize for the immediate efficiency. So in this way, it sort of uh, should provide as output uh, relatively optimal uh, set of items, sets. But it still requires a lot of memory. And then, uh, here is uh, updating the work, then starting to do the slim version, sort of like, like uh, trying to make it more optimal, uh, generating data on the fly, trying to avoid the memory footprint, uh, but the overall principle is still the same, trying to avoid the uh, memory usage, but still trying to encode the data in as short a uh, way as possible. And then, uh, then the problem could be that conversion uh, might be uh, slower and harder, uh, because uh, you may also all the time generate some bad items. And uh, 2012 and uh, Slim and somewhere was the slimmer, slimmer. So basically, it seems that from 2014, so a couple of years later, uh, providing even even slightly better code, slimmer. Um, I think that that code is not yet available. But the general principle is uh, still the same. In order for us to encode the data we should think how to make the small description of the data and uh, the small set of uh, rules or, or code tables so that if we apply these uh, code tables, we can make a short description of the large database. And that intuitively should bring you the, the item sets that really belong together frequently. And if you would use them, you can compress the data. So in the homework, uh, Marilee uh, said that uh, well, she, she updated this uh, guideline how to use CRIP. So then she said that, yes, it may look scary, but you can actually download for all the steps and should be able to work uh, with this uh, example data set uh, using CRIP. Just to try to understand whether whether these uh, rules might be uh, better or 
or maybe not. It's, it's really hard to say, and especially now the, the data is encoded by numbers, so for you these are just numbers, it's very hard to make sense. Uh, but Marilis uh, has, uh, and uh, yeah, they have the uh, code tables, so some of the rules they can open for you. What are these items that you find uh, relevant, or items that you find relevant, or interesting? Uh, okay, so they are sort of wrapping up in this frequent item set mining. I'm trying to say that this is uh, by far not all that there can be done. You can start doing the multi-relation association rules, uh, multiple relationships, uh, context-specific versions, uh, some weight. You can start thinking that what, what happens if we start adding uh, weights to the data, uh, higher order patterns, uh, what happens if we start doing approximate item sets, Approximation may be good because sometimes there are small errors. What, what happens if we do approximate uh, subsets? Uh, can we somehow generalize item sets? Can we make some concept hierarchies? Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so uh, we can think of the different types of data where data comes in in sequences. Some uh, like you run the website and you get the web usage log, so these are the sequences, what things are being done to, uh, frequently, one after the other, uh, how to do the intrusion detection, some unexpected pattern occurs, can you predict from the error messages, uh, the real shutdowns of the system, so all kinds of different contexts where you can start uh, trying to find rules that explain the data. So, we were talking about the mining association patterns, but you can have the concept. You can think of this as the conceptual issues about what are the theoretical formula, uh, formulations. We showed you the brief lattices, uh, the bounds of this enumeration, what is the combinatorial complexity, what are the data types, binary, numeric, nominal, etc. What types of rules? What types of item sets? Close, maximal, emerging patterns. Some new product was bought into, into the market. How does a new pattern evolve? Right? Because we are working with a uh, with a continuously uh, created data. Um, different types of structures, subtrees, subgraphs, uh, computational models, different ways of average a priori and epic tree we looked at. Then visualization topics. You try to visualize it in one way, but is this the best way? Probably not. Uh, probably there are better ways. And then the interestingness, objectives are uh, subjective. How to do the rankings and summarization. Uh, and then application specific uh, questions. Uh, how to do the uh, web analytics, free text, bioinformatics, whatever the science team do. Or other types of uh, of rules. So, with the very basics, you can do something. But the moment that you start going deeper into this field, you need to uh, start uh, learning more. Or maybe there are better uh, methods out there uh, to use. And then, of course. Uh, 
web is full of uh, uh, background material and references. Okay, that was the last one on this uh, frequent hypothesis mining. Is there any ending burning questions about that? Some tools may be worse uh, than some others. Somebody has very negative uh, experience, and somebody says, actually, it's uh, quite positive if you use this one. Right? So uh, it's, a, it's in a way for you to discuss about what is the best practice, uh, how to achieve the results. So I'm sure that there are some of the functions built in, but you have to be into the manner. But uh, on the other hand, the rules are not so complicated. The rules are not so complicated. And if you, if you build your own code base or something, then you may be better off by having your small uh, set of functions um, and then later using exactly those. You know what they are. You, you, you know how efficient or inefficient they are. And uh, it's still your code rather than depending on million different uh, frameworks and libraries from where you only plug one server to. So, uh, in the course we have had these descriptive statistics and uh, summarization plan happens. Uh, now we are moving a bit to the predictive analytics. We want to do machine learning to predict uh, the future uh, from, uh, from different people we have the uh, slides. So, of course you understand that uh, but you need some sort of machine learning for uh, for image analysis, for robot control. Uh, for control, you may uh, need uh, different kinds of automated learning processes. And especially now, you have heard so much uh, buzz about the, the 
deep learning. The deep learning was uh, kind of made taking the neural networks to the next stage of, uh, of uh, evolution by small theoretical insights and uh, making them very big and somehow now the machine is already able to do the uh, visuals uh, um, play go to something that were sort of like five years ago seemed oh these are still like 20 years from now maybe 10 15 at least right so very rapidly huge successes have emerged So what we want to have for machine learning from this course is uh, sort of like basic terminology, a little bit of basic foundations, uh, some general framework, what is machine learning? Uh, especially supervised machine learning, where we teach the machine explicitly to recognize some things from the others, or, or, or teach machine in a way that we tell you in advance what we want to achieve. There is an unsupervised machine learning that you just throw in data and you start asking, okay, what are the similar patterns, what are the clusters? Cluster analysis is kind of unsupervised. Uh, finally, different types of uh, data that go well together. But in supervised, we have the, the training by the, uh, by the labeling in the beginning. And at the end, we ask uh, labeling at the end. So, uh, of course, all of this is... Uh, Full of all the kind of statistical uh, challenges, uh, how much do you trust in this mean value significance? Is your machine learning system consistent over time, or is it very, you don't want your self driving car to be very inconsistent, right? It has to be very, somehow very stable to the small changes in the environment. Uh, but some methods can be very unstable, small change can change that uh, uh, effect a lot. You don't want to have that. They have to be uh, sometimes stable. And then, okay, state of the art is now uh, uh, gets outdated uh, very quickly, but the uh, methods in here support vector machines, uh, kernel methods. Uh, we are not going to uh, go uh, through all of these, but just uh, you can start Googling. Uh, graphical models are some of these Bayes uh, type things, data variables. We don't have enough data always. Machine learning theoretically requires a lot of data to train. But we have a very small uh, sense of data. So some methods are there to boost the amount of data that we have to make data seem more sometimes. And boost the learning efficiency by, by clever ways. Then we have the questions about Okay, you prefer one type of method, you prefer the other type. Each one of you does slightly different. You have different background knowledge. But collectively, if I did a poll, then collective intelligence is better than any one of you individually. So there are ensemble methods that bring together many different methods, they ensembles and then the easiest way is to make a majority classification. So uh, 
I could start asking some stupid poll questions. Who believes what one or the other thing? And collectively, uh, we get good results. Uh, and then things like reinforcement is something like in the, in the games, you, you all the time you get uh, feedback, sort of reinforcement that this is good, this is bad. You can sort of do uh, this uh, constant uh, training of the model. So we are back to, to asking what is the model of the world that allows us to predict future as good as possible. Knowing that there will be mistakes. So we need uh, one type of machine learning in a way that given the knowledge about uh, X, can we say something about Y? That's exactly what we need now. Right? Given uh, something about X, products of X, can we say something about uh, Y? And uh, what does this uh, tell us? that with 70% confidence we can predict chips. You need classification in, in many different domains. Uh, this is credit scoring. So if your income is too small, you are a high-risk customer, right? Income threshold too small, we don't give you warning. But still, if your income is huge in here, but you don't have anything on your saving account, that means that you're a risky customer as well, because you have huge income, but you don't save anything. How can you pay the mortgage? So this example is good customers, bad customers, and the rule is very simple. If then else um, uh, rule, if, if your income is less than, or uh, let's put it, uh, yeah, okay, who is, uh, if your income is less than this, or savings is less than this, then you are high risk. If you have high income, high savings, you are low risk. Yeah? This is the rule. You can have the situation that some, uh, you just look at the past uh, cases, uh, who you have given mortgage, and then find Okay, these people paid back, but they did not. Give me what is the rule. What should I have been applying before I give out the uh, mortgage? So this is a, a kind of machine learning, uh, positive and negative examples, and what is the model that is able us to, to predict who will be in future, positive or negative? In this case, we can say that this is a a single if that else rule, but in fact it, 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 it can be also represented as a decision tree if less than, than high risk, otherwise if less than this also high risk, otherwise good. So we can make a decision trees uh, using these individual variables one by one in a tree to classify, so we want to classify. Uh, where do we want to classify? Uh, classifier pattern recognition, recognize uh, classifiers or make the pattern recognition. For face recognition, you can do um, ask who is on the same picture. I don't know how many of you do the, the tag the, the people on the faces on the 
your photo collections? Who is not doing that? Okay. So sometimes the machine is so much better in recognizing faces than I have of my own children. I'll tell you one apart from the other. <laughs> Scary. Right. Um, character recognition. So of course, character recognition uh, uh, is number plate recognition, for example, or, or address labeling tasks, all automated. Speech recognition, uh, that, but in character recognition you have the problem that you have different handwriting styles, etc. In speech you can have a, a time-dependent uh, 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 topics. In the medical diagnosis or, or, or treatment you, you, you need to have some description of the symptoms and the illnesses and treatments and predict uh, the future or maybe, maybe from symptoms uh, predict what is the illness. In biometrics, you want to predict based on some measurements, you want to make sure, yes, this is that person, and nobody else. You want to classify one person against everybody else. You train uh, with one set of examples of the same person, and then your task is to tell uh, which one from here is the same person. It's a no-brainer for humans, right? Should be. Or does anybody have difficulties? <laughs> but now write the program to do this for the computer. Python, yes. Um, I, I, I was using these examples uh, sort of like sometimes that. Uh, Oh, there is all the time this question about how much uh, students should learn in, before they go to work in the company. And then the good programmer, good programmer just takes the specification and writes the code, right? If there is a good analytics, uh, well, uh, analysis has provided a very good uh, specification, a good programmer can write the code of it, right? That is a mantra. You just need somebody who tells you the specification, and then you write the code. By the way, if specification is still good, why don't we automate that from the specification to the code ourselves? Then we don't need programmers who do this cheap stuff. <laughs> but the specification, for example, is that we need to have the code that recognizes the car number plates with 99.99% accuracy. That's your specification. Write me that code. So where do you start? You need to start training, looking at lots of images, what types of number plates there are, how they are, what types of angles, what types of uh, uh, daylight uh, and night, uh, what types of there are, uh, make the training cases that these are the, this number plate actually reads this, this reads this, start uh, training the machine. So what type of uh, machine learning do you may want to have? One is regression. Based on based on uh, mileage of the of your old car, what is going to be the sales price for that? You buy the car, you drive 150,000 uh, kilometers. What's the price that you can sell it to? So from the mileage, predict the price for the sold car. Uh, 
maybe mileage is not the, enough. You have the, the build year and mileage, and then because one year old car that has driven 150,000 kilometers is, is much better than, I don't know, 10 year old car that has also done 150,000 kilometers. So uh, regression tries to predict uh, the value as a real uh, value number. Uh, as a sum function, uh, we want to estimate price from, uh, for certain model based on some set of parameters, uh, car attributes and some parameters. We want to learn the model uh, that based on the car, uh, well, given the model, you fit in the, in the car uh, variables and you get the price. In the, uh, you, if you want to build something that navigates the car, steers the wheel automatically, or does an industrial robot or whatever robot, then you need to uh, tune slightly uh, the navigation. So you need a regression type uh, analysis. Or we can start doing classification, sort of like uh, binary classification or more uh, classes, start predicting uh, future cases uh, based on the uh, based on the old examples. So why do we need supervised learning is we want to predict future, one, but if we, if we know how to predict future, we can also do the knowledge extraction. If these rules tell me what happens in future, we can, I can look at these rules and I can extract the knowledge from the rules. I can interpret the rules. We want compression. The rules have to be our understanding of the world has to be simpler than the description of the world as data. Right? We want the rules to be uh, compact and understandable, that we can uh, compress a navigation system or base recognition into the small photo camera. We want to have the compression, and, uh, and from if we know how to do compression, we can maybe also do knowledge extraction. Once we know the rules, we can also ask, what are the outliers? I know the rules in here. Anything that does not correspond to rules of standard behavior is an outlier, and we should pay extra attention to that. Especially, for example, uh, in the case of intrusion detection. Intruder uses a new uh, way to enter the system, and uh, hopefully we can detect it, because it's totally different from anything that you have seen in the past. So let's do some uh, supervised learning. Uh, well, these are the slightly outdated things. I could ask, what will be the summer of 2016? Will it be hot or, uh, hot or cold? You have all the historical data. Collect your past couple of years of memories. At this state, does it really do random by going down or goes as they want? <laughs> At least you can try it, right? Um, this winter has been the warmest of any recorded history of human uh, mankind. The last summer was the, the hottest, and now this uh, winter has been the hottest. 
Um, so the global warming is actually really uh, picking up very, very rapidly. Uh, given the global warming, warming, you could say that, oh, it will be warmer, right? That's easy prediction. It should be getting warmer and warmer over time. Uh, last year, this uh, was in a series of problems that I think that the heat was in the central Europe and it did not reach here. There was some blockage. So basically, we had a very cold uh, July, but then we had a very warm uh, August, September. Um, yeah, you can ask, okay, even if, even if we have the data, is it meaningful to try to predict it this way? For, for weather predictions, there are far better uh, data and uh, ways how to do that. Uh, and in here, your expertise kicked in, and you know that from this, you can't predict. But uh, the other type of predictions, you have been uh, going to the uh, study at the university. You have different grades from different courses. You have your past experience, uh, whether you studied a lot or not so much. I was a professor, uh, easygoing or very tough. When you, what kind of grade did you get? And now you can get asked, okay, how do I ensure that my next grade would be A? In a way, from this, you want to predict this, or you could say, okay, in order to predict this, what would be the uh, underlying parameters? You can, even in, with this Bayes kind of thinking from one, you can go to the other, and you can go backwards. Sometimes. Another, ma another machine learning, the magical. Uh, Magnetic bracelet. You are setting up the startup company, start selling them, and you have the data. On Monday, not using magnetic bracelet, it was a heavy headache. On Tuesday, I started using magnetic bracelet, the headache went down, less headache. By Wednesday evening, no headache. Uh, keep using bracelet. Thursday, no headache at all. So you stopped using magnetic bracelet and still no headache. So therefore, because of the magnetic bracelet, we got cured from the headache. Proof, positive proof, it works. <coughs> Next week, trick less, right? Next weekend. <laughs> so you can uh, say that by the data, magnetic bracelet cures headache. But you still don't know the, the cause. There can be some uh, correlation. Uh, okay. Um, so how do we do science? We uh, we do collect data, or you do business uh, by collecting data, observations from the market, from the behavior. Uh, then you come up with these rules or theories. Uh, how can you explain these observations? Uh, all the rules stuff that we talked in here for machine learning the theories. So you have the learned theories that are better than your past knowledge. And then based on the better theory, you may want to also alter a little bit of the, of the data collection. This happens all the time in, in some large scale uh, 
online businesses like uh, Google search or Yandex search, we have some theory what people might want to click. So you want to have, you want to learn by the actual data what was clicked or not, and then you learn the new rules, and then you test one test group, the other test group, which one works better, that rule is a better theory, and then you apply it and keep collecting data, uh, observations, and then you can go in infinite uh, loops, the faster and faster you can get better and better uh, knowledge. Automate. So you can fully automate science. This is not a joke. It exists already, to some extent. There is, uh, uh, there is uh, already about 15 years ago, uh, there was a robot scientist, if you start Googling robot scientist, uh, University of Aberystwyth, Aberystwyth in, the, in, the, in Britain, one of these, in Wales, I think, um, Adam, Adam the robot scientist, I think he was. So, so what, what it started doing is that it, uh, it, it was studying the yeast cells. And uh, by that time, uh, yeast has about 6,000 genes. And uh, there have been collections of uh, yeast where one gene has been knocked out one by one. So you have 6,000 of yeast, each one missing one uh, gene. Maybe essential, maybe not. How do you know? We don't know the function of all the 6,000 genes. The scientists are trying to figure out what is the function of each and every, every gene. Uh, some gene may be important for you to survive in the salty environment. Some gene may be important for you to survive in higher alcohol. Yeast produce alcohol. So you want to, maybe this, uh, some, some of these allows you to reduce, survive in higher alcohol so you can get stronger beer. But you don't know that. You don't know the function of each and every, every gene, uh, how evolution has played that, under which condition that becomes important from the evolutionary past. So basically the robot scientist was dealing with the, having the fridges uh, full of these different yeast strains having the database of what is known about the functions so far, what is known about the relationships between the genes as much as it was known, and what was the task was to say, okay, in here we have a significant lack of understanding, or it could be this or that, A or B, we don't know which. And the task of the program was to not just do every possible experiment with every possible gene, because that would be very, very costly, very long time. You can't do every possible test, stupid test. You have to be clever, right? So the task of the program was to look at the data and ask which test, if you complete that experiment, would give us most knowledge for future. So somehow prioritize the experiments in the way that, okay, Let's do next, this experiment because this will give us the most new knowledge. And once you complete it, you, well, you, then the robot goes to the yeast, puts it on the, on the plate, takes part of that, grows, adds some salt, for example. Yeah? 
how well does this yeast grow versus the other uh, yeast? Different yeast. And you can figure out whether salt was resistant, salt resistance was in one or the other. And uh, then you get better at database. And then you ask again, what should be the next test? And then you get rid of all the PhD students and postdocs, and you just have engineers and computer software programmers who do, do all these uh, robots and stuff. Some things you can automate uh, in this way. And you guys are going to take so many jobs away from the other people, right? Uh, so uh, sometimes this loop has been actually closed, and you can think of the online, uh, huge online uh, businesses that constantly test uh, their different theories, different models, machine learning predictions. Uh, Booking.com, uh, they say that every day they run at least two, three experiments on their website. To do that, you could do, I don't know, run, I don't know, 10 different uh, experiments every single day. Uh, not to speak of uh, Google's and these, for different markets, test different things, what works, what does not work. This is all more or less, some of this is fully automated processes, uh, testing out different things. Uh, and, or Amazon, all the time learning what to do. Observing the behavior of actual clients, getting the better theories, next time doing it slightly better. And this is a, uh, accelerating loop at the moment. And yet it all boils down to very simple uh, cases. We have X and Y examples. For X1, we observe Y1. For X2, we observe Y2 x1 is some uh, set of variables, and y, y belong to this y. So the question is, what is a function from x? What can, how can we predict y so that we generalize all the knowledge that is in these examples? Uh, in the regression, y is just a real value. How to, what is the function that goes through these points? How can we predict from x what is a y? In here is a blue and red, y is either blue or red, and our task is, from the examples, learn how to separate the blues from the red. Machine learning classification, one type, the other type. So, uh, classification is really from the examples that we see, and have the examples trained with the labels, we believe that this function in here now allows us to tell this, this dot, when we observe somebody with these values, will be ever blue. Good customer, bad customer. Will buy this book, not buy this book. Okay, um, the time is up, um, and, uh, and we stop it here. The, the models can be different, uh, but we will do decision trees, some single neurons, neural networks, there can be different types of, uh, of models, but this is all about machine learning. Next week we talk about it.